Hi everybody, welcome. We're really glad you could join us today. Um, in this session, we're going to be talking about best practice planning for high quality work walking environments in our towns and cities. My name's Elena Gardner. I'm the communications manager at Austroads and I'll be moderating today's session. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. So a little bit about Austroads, we're the peak organisation of Australasian transport and traffic agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Austroads uses a program management approach to deliver its work and each program is focused on an operational area of the road system. The project we're discussing today was delivered under the network program, which is managed by Richard Del Place. So just a bit of housekeeping. Our presenters will speak for 40 minutes today and then we'll have a Q&A session that will run for 15 minutes. We do record all of our webinars and we'll email you once the recording is uploaded on our website. We also distribute our webinars via podcast and you can subscribe to our channel by searching for Austroads in your podcast app. Today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handout section in your sidebar. You'll find that over on the right hand side of your screen. If you run into any technical problems, please let me know in the question section of your sidebar. And just a quick tip, if you do lose sound or your picture freezes, that is most likely an issue with your connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration often fixes that issue. So this session is going to be focusing on Austroads Guide to Traffic Management, which has recently been updated with new pedestrian planning guidance. The guides can be downloaded from our website for free and there's just a link to the set um, up there on that slide. There's also a link there to the guide to road design. There's quite a lot of um, pedestrian design material in the guide to road design. So please do send us any questions you have for the Q&A session. You can do that at any time uh, in the webinar. Just simply type your question into the question box um, it really does help us to answer your question if you can include the slide number that your question relates to. And it can be helpful to have a PDF of the slides to refer back to the slide number. So just a reminder that the slides are available in the handout section. So we have more than a thousand people registered today um, for the session. So there is um, a high likelihood that we won't be able to answer all the questions in the Q&A session but we will respond to all of your questions in writing. So um, please don't feel as though you can't send us a question because there's a lot of people online, um, but we will probably respond to most questions via writing today. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our two guests today. Um, Anne-Marie Head and Jeanette Ward are both from Abley and they're both joining us from New Zealand today. We'll first hear from Anne-Marie, who will provide an overview of the project and look at the role of walking and the types of pedestrians and their characteristics. Anne-Marie is an Associate Transport Engineer and a key member of Abley's People and Places team, which is focused on planning and designing complex urban environments for safe and healthy people. Anne-Marie has a specific interest in planning and designing for active travel modes and the multiple benefits these modes bring to individuals, the community and the planet. 
Our second expert, Jeanette Ward, is a technical director at Abley and also a member of the People and Places team. Jeanette has a diverse engineering background that allows her to see urban environments from a range of perspectives. She's been involved in a number of industry guidance projects and we'll talk about pedestrian planning concepts along with processes, methods and tools. So welcome Anne-Marie and Jeanette. I'm now going to hand over those um, controls so that you can present your slides. Thanks Elena and kia ora koutou everyone. Jeanette and I are actually sitting in the same room today, which is a bit of a novelty after spending about eight weeks working from home in our own bubbles. And I know many of you were in similar situations, but hopefully things are coming back to a bit of normality wherever you are. So firstly, some acknowledgements to the project team. Robin Davies from the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads was the project manager for Ostroads. Big thanks to Robin and her colleague, Michael Langdon, who both promoted the inclusion of training webinars as part of the scope of the project, which is what we're doing today. So the consultant team was made up of Janita Nye and our colleague, Dave Smith. And also thank you to Cameron Munro from CDM Research for his contributions to the project. A key part of our project team was the Ostroads Working Group, which included a number of jurisdictional representatives, as shown in the list there. For those of you in Australia who may not be aware, the New Zealand Transport Agency is now also known as Waka Kotahi. And we'd like to thank all of these people for their assistance throughout the project. So why did Ostroads commission this project? Well, walking as a fundamental human activity is important for the success of urban areas and often provides the key link connecting land use with transport systems. It is also an important contributor to health and well-being of our communities. There's a renewed drive to prioritise investment for walking in Australian and New Zealand jurisdictions and therefore providing good guidance for practitioners who are planning and designing for walking is essential. Prior to this work, the guidance within Ostroads, and in particular the Guide to Traffic Management and the Guide to Road Design series, weren't up to date with respect to providing for people who walk and did not always reflect international good practice. I'd just like to note that this webinar is the first of two. We'll be presenting another one next week, which covers measuring pedestrians, including survey and audit methods. So through our review of the existing guidance in Ostroads, we identified eight research themes that needed to be addressed, and these are shown here. We needed to introduce walkability and network accessibility as key transport planning tools. We also looked at updating the pedestrian types and how to address their needs, and I'll go into that in, um, shortly. Um, encouraging priority for, for pedestrians was another aspect and ensuring best practice design for pedestrians is included in the guides. Another theme was better recognising walking as a travel mode and the footpath as part of a road cross section. We also looked at embedding the characteristics of a walkable network into the guides. We wanted to reinforce safety and personal security issues and outcomes for pedestrians, which seemed to be missing from the guides and also address some terminology issues with regard to walking and pedestrians and what they were called in the guides. 
Our work began in mid-2018 and firstly involved identifying gaps in the current guidance. We then set about preparing content to fill the gaps and this resulted in adding new content and modifying existing content within six parts. That's part three to eight of the Guide to Traffic Management shown in the slide. We also identified changes and additions to content within the Guide to Road Design and these will be made in due course. They're not there yet. The Guide to Road Safety series was not part of this project as it was being updated by others at the time. Given the information about planning and designing for pedestrians is contained in many of the guides, we've developed a navigation graphic that might help you to find what you're looking for. This version shown here is still in draft, but we thought it would be good to share it with you today. And it can be downloaded from the handout section of the toolbar. At the moment, the links are to the landing page for each guide, but once the new Guide to Traffic Management parts are built online, then the specific parts of the guides will be linked there. So hopefully it'll become a useful resource for you. One thing to note is that best practice is continually evolving. Our identification of gaps and development of content to fill those gaps was completed last year, but there are new techniques and practices coming to the fore all the time. One example of this is the Planning for Walking Toolkit developed by Transport for London that was published a few months ago and shown on the right there. Another point is that Ofroads research is ongoing, so there have been other research reports published since we completed our work. For example, and something of relevance to pedestrians, is the research titled Integrating Safe System with Movement in Place for Vulnerable Road Users. Also, other relevant research is underway, such as a project to classify, measure, and value the benefits of place on the transport system. This project is looking at metrics and methods, and I understand it will be published shortly. Both these projects demonstrate that Ostroads want to acknowledge place in the guidance. This is why, also why it is important to work in multidisciplinary teams when developing transport projects, and we have reiterated this throughout the guidance. Obviously, our work was done pre-COVID-19, so we don't have any specific content regarding how to deal with the current challenges in this webinar, although many of the philosophies probably still apply. And I'd also like to point out that Ostroads develops guidance with input from the jurisdictions. That's why we had a working group. And it is acknowledged that some jurisdictions will retain their own guidance for some topic areas. Also want to note that policy and lawmaking is a jurisdictional function. And finally, guidance can be really helpful, but it is not all that is needed. We would like you to be able to understand the fundamental concepts that foster a mindset that brings planning for pedestrians to the forefront. So you're thinking about it all the time rather than as an afterthought. So this is a training webinar, so it covers a wider content context than what is included in the Guide to Traffic Management. It also crosses into guidance contained within the Guide to Road Design and the Guide to Road Safety. Today's webinar is all about planning for pedestrians, so we provide high quality walking environments that support and encourage walking. We will also indicate where to find the guidance within the guides. We've included references in the bottom left hand corner of the slides and used the colour coding shown here to indicate if the guidance was updated from what previously existed or is new content. 
We'll also present some project examples to illustrate some aspects of what we've talked about, but these are not included in the guides. And just a reminder that design-related matters are still to be released when the Guide to Road Design is updated. So let's talk about the role of walking. Most journeys have an element of walking. They provide the first mile and last mile access. It forms a key role in the transport system and along with public transport, significant numbers of people can move by walking. It's also space efficient. Previously, part four of the Guide to Traffic Management included information about pedestrians and how to plan for them, but it was not comprehensive compared to other modes. So we've hopefully filled that gap. I've also briefly listed here the benefits of walking. Firstly, it's healthy and has the added bonus that it integrates physical activity into daily life. It is the greenest mode as it generally requires no equipment uses no fuel and emits no greenhouse gases. It also doesn't contribute to air or noise pollution. It's free to everyone, available to everyone, or should be designed to provide equity to everyone and has other social and community benefits. It also has the potential to benefit the environment and the economy by reducing congestion. So I guess what we're trying to get to is to be able to say that great walking environments are livable places. And I like this quote to illustrate the point. If you plan cities for cars and traffic, you get cars and traffic. If you plan for people and places, you get people and places. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the different types of pedestrians and some of their characteristics. Pedestrian space should cater for the needs of all users that are defined as pedestrians under legislation that applies in the relevant jurisdiction. And I want to make clear that the legislation differs around Australia and New Zealand, so the Austroads definition is quite broad. So in the Austroads guides, pedestrians include those on foot and people with a disability, which includes mobility, vision and cognitive impairments. It also includes people on devices such as skateboards and scooters, personal mobility devices like e-scooters and motorised mobility devices such as electric wheelchairs and mobility scooters. Pedestrian facilities are often designed to cater to the normal pedestrian, assuming they have good eyesight and hearing and are able-bodied. But when we look at these people, in the pictures, there are all pedestrians, but they have different characteristics and requirements. We need to understand these characteristics so we can plan and design environments that are inclusive and meet a range of needs. On the next few slides, I'm going to talk through some key pedestrian groups so you can get a flavour for what different characteristics exist and how these might impact on how we plan and design for pedestrians. This is important because if we don't get it right, it can result in social exclusion for these people. So firstly, let's talk about older pedestrians. Changes in physical factors associated with ageing can result in decreased agility, balance and stability for an older person, which can result in difficulties in moving from one level to another. In terms of the built environment, being able to accommodate this person we need to consider the quality of the surface, where steps and ramps are provided, and the gradient in general. Curb heights will also have an impact in terms of whether they can step down 
or upper curve. The second example going across the page is to imagine someone whose joints don't have the full range of motion. This may result in them walking more slowly, which impacts on crossing times and also means the person is likely to undertake a shorter journey length on average, so directness becomes more important. Moving to child pedestrians, a child's physical size limits their ability to see and be seen in the road environment. But we shouldn't just think of children as miniature adults. In addition to their smaller physical size, their intellectual, psychological and sensory capacities are limited by virtue of their age and stage of development. Children do not reach an adult level of performance in traffic in other words, they do not have the perceptual and cognitive capacity to make sound judgments about traffic safety until about 10 to 12 years of age. So looking again at two typical characteristics for children. They may have a limited attention span and cognitive abilities, leading to being unable to read or understand warning signs or possibly traffic signals. This means we, as designers, need to consider how legible the streetscape is the potential for using symbols rather than words, and possibly including positive direction signage. The second characteristic is they may be less accurate in judging the speed of vehicles and how far away they are. This can lead to them choosing to cross the road unsafely. And this means we, we need to consider the type and design of crossing facilities. People with a disability. Disability is defined as a limitation in a person's ability to carry out daily activities. Pedestrians with a disability range from those who have the ability to walk but have difficulty in doing so, especially in negotiating steps and changes of grade, to those who require assistance to maintain balance and interpret directions, those that have impaired vision or are blind, and those who require a mobility aid such as a wheelchair. Various surveys have found that between 18 and 24% of people in Australia and New Zealand are impaired in some way. For adults, the physical limitations are the most common type of impairment, and that's indicated by the big blue teardrop. For children, learning difficulties are the most common impairment type, shown by the big yellow teardrop. Designing an environment for these users creates an accessible environment for, for everyone and this is known as universal design. I'd like to note here that planning and design guidance for mobility and vision impaired pedestrians is incorporated in the Austro's guides, whereas providing for people with cognitive impairments such as dementia is an area that still requires further development. So mobility impaired pedestrians are commonly thought of as those using devices to help them walk, for example, crutches, sticks, wheelchairs, or prosthetic limbs. I've included a photo of a person with a broken leg here, as this could be you at some time in your life. It's also worth noting that many people with mobility impairments do not use a device. So some example characteristics of this, these people um, Someone using a mobility aid is likely to need a larger space and good surface to move around. This impacts on the width of the footpath, the smoothness of the footpath and crossings, and where gaps and grates are located, and ensuring obstructions are minimised. People using mobility aids may also find it difficult to negotiate deep steps. 
The second characteristic is that someone with a mobility impairment may have less stamina, which means they would take shorter journeys and need rests. And this means we should consider resting places and possibly shelter. Moving to people who have sensory impairments, an example of a characteristic to consider would be someone with severe vision impairment who is likely to use a cane or a guide dog to get around. This impacts on how we make the streetscape legible through, for example, ensuring there's a continuous accessible path of travel, ideally along building lines, and tactile paving needs to be provided and located consistently when crossing. Another example could be someone with reduced hearing ability, which may mean they miss audible cues of when traffic is coming. So we, as designers, need to make sure visual information is reinforced, for example, making it clear when they're, when they're stepping into a roadway where vehicles could be traveling. And finally, people using wheels to get around. A characteristic of a wheelchair is it's more susceptible to the effects of gravity, meaning they tend to travel slower uphill and reach faster speeds when traveling downhill or on level surface surfaces. This impacts on what route gradients are appropriate and, the, and also means we need to consider the interaction with walking pedestrians, particularly on sloping paths. The second characteristic is that people in wheelchairs are seated, meaning their eye level is lower. This affects where we place push buttons at traffic signals so they can be reached, and also means we need to consider the position of signs and intervisibility to vehicle traffic. So all the information that I've described in the last few slides and a lot more is provided in tables in part seven of the Guide to Traffic Management. It's in a, an appendix there. I suggest you go and have a good look there to find out more. There's a lot of information in it. Moving to walking speeds and the speeds of other people using paths varies a lot. Typical walking speeds are about three to six kilometers per hour, but this is faster for people walking or jogging for exercise and some mobility scooters and can be slower for people with impairments. We need to be conscious of walking speeds as this has implications for path widths and also crossing times for pedestrians. And there will be some updates to the width and operating spaces for pedestrians in the Guide to Road Design changes when they are made. So watch this space. And finally, probably the most important concept to understand in terms of pedestrians is the vulnerability of them when hit by a vehicle. In a vehicle-pedestrian collision, the probability of survival for a pedestrian decreases dramatically at impact speeds above about 30 kilometers an hour as shown in the figure. This graph is now included in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 4 and shows that the risk varies depending on the type of pedestrian and vehicle conflict. For example, a frail pedestrian or a larger or heavier vehicle may result in a higher risk of death or serious injury at the same impact speed than an average pedestrian and an average sized vehicle. And we've represented this using the shaded S-curve rather than a single line. Speed management is therefore a key principle of the overall management of the network. Reducing vehicle speeds in areas where there are pedestrians and cyclists, such as activity centres and school zones, is fundamental to improving safety as well as comfort for pedestrians. In fact, a study 
by Woolley and others in 2018 found that the most effective measure to improve pedestrian safety that has been achieved to date is the adoption of lower urban speed limits. And the city of Christchurch, where we live, has done just that. A 30 km per hour speed zone was introduced to central Christchurch along with redesigned streets and speed zone thresholds in March 2016. It was part of the accessible streets plan that was agreed after the devastating earthquakes in 2011. And an analysis of the crash records provided to us by the City Council for the two and a half years before and after the speed limit change for the 30k zone and the rest of the city centre, which is a, has a 50k limit, revealed that the change has reduced crashes and injuries overall, whilst activity, vehicles, pedestrians and cyclists, has increased over that time. So the graph shows the 30k area statistics in blue and the 50k area in orange. It shows the number of crashes in the 30 kilometer zone fell by 18% after the speed change compared with before it, as shown in the first blue bar, whilst the 50 kilometer area saw a small increase in crash numbers, the first orange bar. Similarly, the number of injury crashes and the number of injuries also fell significantly compared with the control area. We've also looked into the number of crashes involving pedestrians, but because there are so few pedestrian crashes, it's a bit too early to tell. There's not enough data yet. At the moment, the number of crashes hasn't changed significantly, which is still a good result, given there are many more people in the area than there were prior to the reduced speed limit, because we're um, bouncing back after the earthquakes. I'll now hand you over to Jeanette, who is going to talk you through how to plan for pedestrians. Kia ora everybody. As Anne-Marie has outlined, the role of walking has been expanded on significantly in part four. Overall, the content for pedestrian networks in part four has been expanded from two pages to five pages of content. With another key recognition being that walking can actually be the fastest form of transport travel, particularly when there are constraints on motorised vehicles such as in inner cities. Example being cities like Melbourne with their extensive laneways. We aim to embed this and the other roles of walking that Anne-Marie has outlined into the guides, including defining some key terms. Walkability was a term that was absent from part four previously. This has now been added and defined as the extent to which the built environment is walking friendly or conducive to walking. Accessibility is already a term that is used throughout part four, but generally as it applies to other modes. However, it was not well defined in a network sense, and that, and that it can be modelled from a walking perspective using accessibility modelling. Another key addition to part four is defining some key characteristics that make up a walkable environment, and that as a package, these also contribute to an inclusive and more equitable transport outcomes. We added the nine characteristics that are currently defined in the New Zealand Pedestrian Planning and Design Guide, but acknowledged there were various ways of classifying these. Transport for London, for example, has recently published that planning for walking toolkit Emery mentioned, which identifies seven pedestrian network principles, which are similar to these. They are safe, inclusive, comfortable, direct, legible, connected, and attractive. So very similar. We won't go over all nine today, um, due to time, but we will talk about four of these, 
I think a lot of them do speak for themselves, but we will talk about four with some examples. So universal design. This is very important and we need to ensure that the environment is suitable for and can be understood by all ages, sizes, abilities and disabilities. For example, for mobility impaired people, smooth surfaces, shallow gradients, accessible clear routes and a choice of routes are key universal design aspects. The top photo shows two ways to access the building from the street. Steps or a ramp. It gives choice and it's obvious. Another example is ensuring the environment is suitable for vision impaired people with a similar features but also tactile pavers to guide them. Secure relates to personal security, a key consideration being crime prevention. The Guide to Traffic Management was previously silent on crime prevention through environmental design, also known as SEPTED. So this is now referenced throughout and also in the Guide to Road Design when that comes through. There are seven SEPTED principles, access, surveillance, layout, activity mix, sense of ownership, quality environment and physical protection. As an example on the right, we have two pedestrian access ways in, res in a residential areas. One is in a new subdivision and the other is in an older part of Christchurch. Access and surveillance are key SEPTED principles here. We need open sight lines that are clear and wide. So the top one shows that it's very clear and straight and also there are low permeable fences for surveillance by the neighbouring properties. Compared to the older one, where although you can't see in this photo, there's actually a bend in this access way. So as I enter it, I can't see who's waiting around the corner, particularly with those high fences. Street lighting is also important, but that will also come down to aspects such as impact on neighbours. As we have reiterated throughout the guides, it is important to work closely with urban designers, landscape architects, and also involve SEPTED experts who can advise you and undertake SEPTED audits. When it comes to the walking environment being convenient for pedestrians, that can include providing continuous routes, routes that are unimpeded by permanent or temporary objects. It can also mean well-located crossings on desire lines and with minimal delay. The bottom example was the end of my street, where for years crossing the road with my then small children was not an option, because there's a bend in the road and the speed of cars meant I couldn't cross that road. I had to deviate further down the road to cross. The new crossing there you see allows a two-stage crossing, it slows drivers down and also has a pedestrian crossing each side of the island separate to the cycle crossing. Now I'd like to reiterate that a pleasant environment is not just about making the place look attractive, it's about making the walking journey pleasant and this could mean seating provided for people to rest, linger and socialise. It could mean shade and shelter through the use of street trees or structures and other features such as drinking fountains are also important. So when it comes to what makes up the pedestrian network, you can see that there's a range of things. It's not just about footpaths and crossings, it's about structures such as bridges, underpasses and shared spaces where pedestrians can use the entire space. It also includes stairs, ramps, escalators, elevators and travelators. Part four highlights what hazards might exist for pedestrians in these various facilities. Here are some examples of hazards. So the crossing on the right there has no curb ramps on the opposite side of the road. 
for a visually impaired person or someone in a wheel device, that's going to create a problem when they get to the other side. The middle two photos are permanent and temporary footpath obstructions. And the photo on the right is a path at night with inadequate lighting and vegetation blocking the view of passing drivers. So also touches on that septet issue. But also noting that the way a network is managed can also create hazards, such as how signalised crossings are managed. Insufficient time might lead to increased exposure for people crossing the road. There are many ways to improve the pedestrian environment and address these hazards. And we've been focusing on part four today so far, but we have also made changes to other guide to traffic management parts as listed there. Overall, the theme of prioritising pedestrians is embedded in the updates and in activity centres, for example. Um, the style of treatment there where you have a shared space street, but maybe in the summer, holiday season, you have a lot more people around. So you can just close that off with some plant boxes. So essentially promoting different ways of prioritising pedestrians. In addition to the paths and crossing facilities, the quality of the streetscape and other features support and encourage higher numbers of people crossing. An example of a change to part five is a new table that outlines some measures that can support and encourage walking, depending on the characteristics and function of the road. Footpath widths can be increased, even as a temporary or transitional me measure, like the example of High Street in Auckland, which a lot of you will have seen already. A traffic lane or parking lane could be removed on a multi-lane road to increase footpath width, such as what I understand happened in Edward Street in Brisbane. If a parking lane is part of the cross section, some spaces could be used to create road narrowings, crossings, landscaped areas, or for temporary uses, such as parklets. Also, wide central medians could introduce street trees and crossing features. I'd also like to note that fencing or barriers are sometimes used to protect and guide pedestrians, particularly to safe crossing points. However, these treatments can detract from the pedestrian amenity and also um, the whole environment, so alternatives should be considered. We noted that Queensland um, Transport and Main Roads have a useful guidance on how to use fences, how to place them, as well as alternatives to fencing if you're looking for a resource. Another addition to the part four is recognising that wayfinding can help achieve a more legible walking environment. There is currently no Australian standard or specific Osros guide for pedestrian wayfinding. The key principles and guidelines to consider when implementing a signage scheme are actually provided in part 10 that's existing. However, in part four, we added some examples of published pedestrian wayfinding strategies that outline strategic direction, system components, and design details. So these being legible Sydney, the Adelaide City and Parklands, strict signage strategy, and these have all been referenced in the updates. And there's probably more recent ones that um, have come out since then. So Taking on board what Emory has gone through in terms of pedestrian characteristics and those key things around speed and the points that I've made around the walkable network, how do we tie this all together in a structured way? Well, walking strategies and plans that outline a framework to encourage walking as a viable means of transport, recreation and sport are a good place to start. They generally provide actions and may include targets and monitoring processes. Walking and cycling can be combined within a strategy, 
Although of late, this is generally not considered best practice due to the different actions required for walking compared to cycling and also getting an equal focus. An example of a walking focus strategy was the Queensland Walking Strategy published uh, this year, I believe. The key input to the strategy was the collation of current walking patterns and trends, which is provided in a Walking in Queensland report. There is also an action plan which outlines the initiatives that will be prioritised for investment in the first two years. But at a local level as well, so essentially you start at the national level and you can work down to the local level. It gives you a structured way in terms of meeting your walking objectives. So many jurisdictions will have well-defined planning processes for their strategies, plans and projects. But broadly speaking, they will generally follow the process outlined here. Firstly, defining what you're trying to do. For example, are you aiming to increase walking mode share? Or maybe it's just getting people from A to B. It could be defining objectives. But these are very important to sort out early and can involve workshops. Local people are a great source of information about walking. There are some really useful tools these days available to engage with people, such as Social Pinpoint, where people can comment online about a specific location. There's also a range of background research information gathering that will be required. And again, just ask people. Then figure out what needs doing. And you might create a network. You might want to add some missing links or to remove barriers to walking. But this step may also require prioritising projects and programmes to match your budgets. Importantly, set some targets and how they will be managed and measured. For example, building a certain distance of footpath per year or increasing walking by a certain amount. And that could be for a certain demographic who are currently underrepresented. Then just do it. It's pretty simplistic, but there may be other major things that you need to consider such a business case. But essentially, um, we need to make things happen. So we've re referenced some structured methods in part four to guide the development of a plan for pedestrians. The Victoria Walks reference is very useful for developing a walking strategy. So there's a hyperlink in this um, in the handout for you to have a look at that. Um, the pedestrian access and mobility plan, plan, also known as a PAMP, is a structured method which I understand is used in a number of jurisdictions in Australia. It's a three-stage um, guide uh, which um, essentially looks at coherent um, pedestrian infrastructure on key routes. Uh, neighbourhood accessibility planning is also a useful tool and also a not or essentially a movement in place framework can guide the operation and development of transport networks. An example from a smaller district that essentially followed the PAMP process is the Buller walking plan. Buller is located on the west coast of the South Island in New Zealand with about 10,000 people. But around 40% of the population are aged between 40 and 60, and another 17 are over 65. There are two main towns, Westport and Reefton, both of which have very wide roads, which result in long crossing distances for pedestrians, and there are poor quality footpath services. The action plan was developed in conjunction with the community, with feedback clearly indicating that people of all ages want to be active, with walking as a key activity. The lack of footpath limits the opportunities for many to walk, particularly with the weather on the west coast. If more footpaths are provided and surface, surfaces and drainage are improved in the town centres, walking could become a more viable option for locals. And the action plan worked through 
the objective target and baseline process that we talked about earlier. So just finally, before we move on to questions, the other um, thing that we've noted in the guidance is that you can use a level of service for pedestrians process. And what we found was that often this is less developed than for other modes of transport and is actually an area of ongoing research. As mentioned earlier, walkability is defined as the extent to which the built environment is conducive to walking. So a lot of these methods listed there focus on that. Um, some people may be familiar with the PERS system that was developed in the UK. We also have a predicting walkability um, work here in New Zealand and more recently the Guide to Healthy Streets indicators coming out of the UK. We're going to go into more detail on these in the next webinar and just also to note that a walking level of service tool will be coming um, very shortly in New Zealand for practitioners. So just in summary, this table here outlines the guide to traffic management changes that have resulted from our review. Today we have predominantly focused on part four, but also note that the guide to road design will also have new pedestrian related content for street designs, crossings, intersections and paths, and we look forward to sharing that with you at a later date. Thank you for joining us today. Back to you, Elena. Thank you very much. Look, a great presentation, guys, and we've gotten some really nice feedback from people saying how much they appreciate this new guidance. Um, I'll just pull back my screen so that you guys can see that. Um, yeah, so, and we do have lots and lots of questions. So the first one is sort of a more general question, I suppose, which is um, that the New South Wales Department of Planning has a guide about active transport and although it's um, a bit dated in that it was released in 2004, are you aware of any other similar guides released by planning authorities in Australia and New Zealand? Well, we're very familiar of course with the um, New Zealand Guide to Pedestrian um, planning and design which um, is actually also being currently updated at the moment. When we looked around the various jurisdictions in our literature review we did find some, we haven't referenced those but um, we, we can provide that list um, when we prepare the answers for the questions Elena we can put in some of the ones that we did find in our literature review. That'd be great. Thanks guys, that would be a really great resource I think. So we did have a number of questions that relate to slide uh, 26, uh, which is about children pedestrians. So the first one is, do you think there's a potential for working together with developmental psychologists when designing for children? Yes, definitely, that would be great. Okay. Yeah, I think the, just to follow up on that, when we talked about working in multidisciplinary teams, I only mentioned, you know, urban designers, landscape architects, septic, but there is so many other disciplines that we would encourage people to collaborate with um, to get good outcomes. Right. I think that um, there's another question here that um, I think there's quite a few questions um, asking what about the what's the role of education? Um, so does the guide simply deal with engineering responses? Does it also cover any um, education or behavioral change um, programs? 
not really. Um, the the guides are very much focused on transport planning and engineering, um, but acknowledging that those every everything it's like a system, um, and we need everyone to understand the various limitations of parts of the system. So with Austroads, it's very much um, around that transport planning side of things, but we know that as an industry, we are often engaging with um, human behaviours, people to actually then develop the guidance. So it's not so much a education tool, um, there are other things that fulfil that role. Great, okay. Um, so uh, looking at slide 30, uh, so the question is, has there been any consideration for the use of um, motorised mobility devices such as gophers in the guidance? Well, you'll remember in one of my first slides I presented the pedestrian definition that is now in part four of the Guide to Traffic Management. And I said it's very general because what we found is that uh, the laws and legislation in the different um, jurisdictions are quite different and so what is allowed in one might not be allowed in another. So that's where this guidance has to take a broad approach rather than trying to say yes or no to specific devices that might be allowed in some places and not others or in some um, on some footpaths and not others. So yes is the answer we have taken in, into account in a broader approach. Great, thanks. Um, so an, another question that I think relates to disability is that um, the, the question is, do these changes include the content of road traffic standard 14 um, and making that compulsory, not just best practice? So that's a, a New Zealand standard, I understand. Yes, it is the New Zealand standard for um, guidelines for visually impaired pedestrians. So it's got the tactile paving and um, audio tactile traffic signal um, guidance in it, or it's actually a standard, as you said. Uh, the Austroads guides do not include um, the content from RTS 14, but we are involved in another project with Wakatotahi, the NZ Transport Agency, to incorporate RTS 14 into a newer version of the Pedestrian Planning and Design Guide for New Zealand. So that help, that's that's just a New Zealand thing. Um, Great, okay, thanks. Um, and look, this question doesn't relate to this slide, but um, I'll throw it in here anyway. And it's, does the guide address the concept of um, the last mile and transport in the last mile? Well, yes, I think it does in, in everything that we've just talked about today, acknowledging that um, no matter what length of journey you're taking, um, that walking trip needs to be accommodated suitably for the various characteristics of pedestrians. Yeah, great. I've got a, quite a few questions relating to slide 33. I'll try and bundle them up into one question, I think, um, which is, do you think the increase in crashes in the 50 kilometre zone is related to an underlying increase in traffic or an increase in traffic which has migrated from the newly established 30 kilometre zone? Or is it a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B? I, I think because we're only looking at two and a half years of 
of data before and after, and we can't really go much before that because the amount of activity in, in the city centre um, before 2014 was pretty minimal because of the earthquakes. Everyone sort of left that area for a while. I think you can have some theories about what's going on, but I don't think we'll know for sure until we've got a bit more after data to be able to see what's happened and compare the crash data with the activity data. So the, the number of vehicles and pedestrians and cyclists that are in those areas to, to understand what the patterns actually are. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, so a slide from, a question from slide 43, which is about plantings. Um, is there any consideration in the guide about the types of plantings that would be appropriate? Um, plantings that might cause a tripping hazard or um, a slip hazard for pedestrians? I'm, I'm just casting my mind now to the guide to road design changes that we've recommended and I believe we've made some commentary around um, guidance for landscaping around, for example, crossing points, so that ensuring that um, small children are visible and things like that. Um, and those guidelines may actually have more information on the types of species of trees that would be appropriate. But what we've tried to focus is on is the concept of um, we love landscaping, we want it, but we also need to be aware of the implications on growing over to reduce path width or block visibility. So when we come to the road design um, rollout, I'm fairly sure we've covered that um, information through referring to some really useful landscape guidance. Terrific, thank you. And another question um, for this slide is, uh, so clearly paths can be made too narrow, but are you aware of any examples where the paths are too wide and that width has an unintended consequence for providing, uh, providing too much space? No, but I, I do recall a number of projects where I've worked closely with um, other disciplines and we concluded in some areas if you provide a too wide a footpath and you don't have enough people it can feel like there's a lack of activity and it may not be good for the, um, the vitality of the area so that's kind of a, an interesting way of looking at it but I haven't seen any paths where a wider footpath could lead to unintended consequences. Okay, and um, is there any guidance around the ideal colour for a footpath, um, including the flooring as well as the side walls? No, um, the most important thing I think from what I understand of um, from visually, visually impaired point of view is that sometimes some colour contrasts can be confusing. Um, so I think the colour aspect really comes down to how it impacts on those with a visual impairment. I recently did a site visit looking with a um, with a person who, who has dealt with these issues before and pointed out that some of the pavers were actually look like potholes um, to a visually impaired person. So 
again, it's all about working with the experts when you're coming when you're looking at doing interesting footpath surfaces over and above, you know, concrete or asphalt, and um, yeah, and as well as colour, um, texture in terms of slipperiness and joins between cobbles. Um, I had the opportunity to use a cane when I was studying and walking around a campus and getting my cane stuck in between pavers um, really highlighted to me the importance of getting your paving right. Hmm. Interesting. I think that that follows on nicely for a question, a question we've got. I'm not sure that we've got a slide necessarily that relates to it, but the question is, um, how can we best foster a sense of ownership in place in the local population rather than just tourists or transient people? Um, for example, do we have any um, guidance around ensuring local cultural, lo local culture such as Aboriginal or Maori values are kept in mind when designing these spaces? I don't know if we've added any content to that effect, although we have that view. Um, but I think the one of the projects that we mentioned that's um, ongoing at the moment with Austroads that's looking at um, place and what that means might answer that question. And also, just reiterate again, it's that multidisciplinary approach where landscape architects and urban designers um, can bring that part of the, um, or that aspect to the project um, that, you know, a transport planner or engineer may overlook or not have the context to develop that side of it. So yeah, again, encourage that multidisciplinary approach. Great, thank you. Um, so a question relating to shared paths with cyclists. Um, so the um, comment is, is that cycle speeds can be high on some arterial shared use path routes, which can be frightening for pedestrians. Is there any guidance on the provision of shared use paths in the um, guide? The Shared paths aspect will be dealt with in the um, guide to road design changes. Um, so here in the traffic management series, we've acknowledged that they are a facility. We've acknowledged the speed difference. And then when it comes to the actual design, there is the width considerations and also, also methods of slowing um, cyclists down in areas where the pedestrians may be more vulnerable, such as a bend, et cetera. So, yeah, I think the answer is yes, we have considered it in the wider project, but it'll come in the guide to road design changes. Okay. Um, so another question is, is there any specific guidance uh, in the guide to traffic management on the planning for pedestrian crossings at traffic signals? Yes, yeah, so in part six of the guide um, to traffic management series, we have added some further considerations and things that people need to think about at um, signalised crosswalks, um, such as looking at different protection um, for the, um, you know, different phasing that provides protection for um, pedestrians and also looking at um, things like Amory talked about, the height of the button and things like that. So the answer is uh, yes. But to be fair, there was already some pretty good information in that part. 
and we've just um, improved it somewhat. Okay, I suspect this might relate to the signage uh, slide, which I'm not quite sure which one it is now, but it's um, has Austroids considered um, tourist pedestrians with different language um, backgrounds and how they're catered for? That could be touched on in part 10 of the guide, which is around um, signage, but we didn't review that or we didn't have the opportunity to update that particular guide. So I think if there is anything, it's likely to be in there. Um, but acknowledging that the pedestrian wayfinding um, probably content is a bit lighter than say the cycle wayfinding and that was one of our other recommendations is around further development of that um, potentially as a separate guide and that would be a perfect place to do that. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Um, so this is also another question about um, pedestrian crossing on signals which is, is there any um, discussion in the guide about uh, pedestrian crossing signal timing being responsive to walkers rather than to motorised traffic? So change in priority, I suppose. Yeah, I think that part nine, which is very focused on the control of traffic signals, may already have information on that. I have to check, but I think we put in some principles in part six around having, um, you know, things that are more prioritising the pedestrian in, in certain contexts where that's suitable, um, such as town centres, um, obviously having an automatic call rather than just a push button call. So it may be that on every phase you call the crosswalk because you know there's going to be people there, so it doesn't rely on them pressing the button. Great. Well, look, thanks, guys. Um, we do have many, many more questions, but I'm afraid we are just about to run out of time. We've just got a minute left. So, um, but we will, as I said before, we will respond to all of your questions in writing and we'll make the, the Q&A sheet available on our website when it's available and we'll email you all and let you know when that happens. Um, so Anne-Marie and Jeanette, thank you so much. It's just been a really great presentation and we've got lots of great feedback already from people. Um, just before I do close out, I will just let you know about the upcoming webinars that we have. Um, Anne-Marie and Jeanette will be running a second webinar next week, which is looking at, oh, wrong slide. That's not very helpful for you all. Um, looking at measuring pedestrians. So that's looking at survey and audit methods. Um, so if you haven't already registered for that, uh, you can do that on our website. Um, we have about 700 people registered for that session next week. Um, we've also got coming up um, soon a, a, a session on the decarbonisation of road transport network operations. Um, so it's quite an interesting uh, look at um, a range of methods for uh, reducing greenhouse emissions and um, that's not yet up on our website, but it will be later today. Uh, so yeah, it, that might be of interest to people. So um, yes, as you said, you can jump on our website and register for all of those upcoming sessions. 
So look, thank you for everybody. Thank you for your questions and for your participation today. Thank you, Jeanette and Anne-Marie. Um, as I close out, we are going to um, pop up a little survey. If you could respond to that, just let us know what worked for you, what maybe didn't work. Um, we do read everything that you send us and we have been using your feedback to shape um, our webinars this year. Uh, and they're always really helpful for us. So um, if you could spend a few minutes filling that out, that would be terrific. Um, so I will close out now and say thank you to everybody and we hope you stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. See you later.